Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, we visited astrophysicist Dr. Hannah Wakeford at the University of Bristol to find out how the James Webb Space Telescope will unlock the secrets of exoplanets. To see the visual imagery Dr. Wakeford discusses during our chat, watch the full video at the BBC Sky Night Magazine YouTube channel. You'll find the link to the video in the description section of this podcast. But now, on to the interview. Hi, I'm Ian Todd from BBC Sky Night Magazine, uh, and I'm here today at the University of Bristol. uh, And we're talking to Dr. Hannah Wakeford, who's uh, an astrophysicist, a lecturer here at the university, and who studies the atmospheres of exoplanets using space-based telescopes. Uh, Dr. Wakeford, thanks very much for for having us up today to the university and for chatting to us. You're very welcome. Uh, Now, we're going to be talking primarily today about um, studying exoplanets with uh, James Webb Space Telescope. But I did think it would be worth um, initially touching on uh, your work with Hubble because would it be fair to say that uh, until relatively recently uh, your, your work with exoplanets has been, has been focused on, on Hubble? Yeah, that's exactly right. The Hubble Space Telescope's been a workhorse for exoplanet atmospheres and are trying to figure out what they are. What, how do we look at them? What does the data look like? And what can we learn about them? So... Importantly, Hubble is looking in the UV and the optical. So really, this is what our eyes can see. So all of the beautiful colors of the spectrum, but pushing into the blue, pushing into the purple end, into the ultraviolet. And that's a unique capability of the Hubble Space Telescope right now. Uh, That's really critical for understanding different parts of the atmosphere. So maybe aerosols or clouds in the atmosphere scattering the light, which happens predominantly in those wavelengths, or the absorption of sodium, potassium, atomic materials, and then also looking at the the kind of very first hints of water vapour absorption. So water as a gas in the atmospheres of these planets and trying to see whether it's there. So Hubble's been looking at nearly, I think, 70 plus planets overall (laughs) over the last decade or so. And I've been really working with that beautiful, beautiful telescope to try and understand as many as I can and, and work out if we can understand trends across lots of different types of planets as well. So it's not just looking at individual little stamps and understanding what they are. It's about looking collectively about what does our collection of of worlds tell us. So Hubble's been amazing with that for the last decade. Anyone who's um, been following the JWST news and, and, and looking forward to the launch of the telescope and the first images, you often heard people refer to JWST as Hubble's successor. Would you would you would you agree with that comparison? Is 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 it, is it an apt is it an apt comparison to make? Do you think? So, in many many ways, JWST is a successor in technological sense, in the size of it, in the type of science that it can help advance. But really, these two telescopes are going to be working together. So, like I said, the Hubble Space Telescope is looking in the UV and mm-hmm. optical. JWST is looking in the infrared. And that's beyond the red part of what our eyes can see. And critically, those link up. There's a very small overlap with the two telescopes in terms of the colors that it can see. And that's going to be really helpful in kind of bringing all of this information together and seeing, you know, was Hubble right? Was, is James Webb right? Do they match each other at that, that wavelength? 
But what JWST is going to be able to do is it's going to just be able to see further. It's going to be able to see more. It's going to be cleaner. It's going to be more precise. And that's simply because it's so much bigger. It is six and a half times the collecting area of the Hubble Space Telescope's mirror. And that's because it's made up of 18 beautiful segments that create this 6.5 meter telescope in space, the largest ever telescope to be launched into space. So in many ways, technologically, it, it really is the successor. It is the next generation space telescope. But in terms of the science that we're gonna do, they are so complementary, and we're going to see so many things coming out of it going, this is what Hubble saw, this is what JWST is seeing. What does that mean? And you need both of them to ask that question. It sounds like it's, um, it's got a lot to, to show and, and there's sort of like a lot to come. It, you, you must be really excited um, in terms of the, the anticipation of, 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 of what, it might, what it might show you as, as an exoplanet scientist. The anticipation for this telescope has been decades in the <laughs> making. I, it's been, I was supposed to do my PhD work, my postdoctoral like, work on data from the James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> it didn't launch then. Uh, I have now waited a decade into my career to start using this. So there's huge amounts of anticipation, both scientifically and just physically and mentally, just building up to, to work on this. So it's insanely exciting for myself, who's been only at this for a decade, I say only because I know some people when I work with people who've been here for two and a half decades waiting for this telescope. And we've also got these amazing new scientists that are working with us, these early career researchers who are either working towards their PhD or have just finished or are working towards getting a permanent job. And they are really the workforce behind this. They're the, the people who will be digging into these data sets. And I'm just really excited to kind of be there and see what they can find out, just like I imagine my advisors were when I was playing around with the Hubble Space Telescope data. Yeah, I definitely wanted to, wanted to get into that. Um, you're, you're part of the uh, Transiting Exoplanet Community, the Early Release Science Programme. Um, yeah, it, it, seems to, it seems to be just like a, a huge international collaboration of numbers and numbers of, of scientists. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, the programme and, and what it will actually be doing? Yeah, so these early release science programs were asked for by the people who run the telescope. They said, okay, everybody in the community, what do you want to know from this telescope? What, do you, what would you pick to showcase your science with this telescope? So the exoplanet transiting community, so these are the people who study planets that pass in front of their star relative to our point of view. That's called a transit. So the community of people who work on these kinds of events to try and understand their atmospheres, because what we can do is we can see the light shining through the atmosphere of the planet and we can measure the composition, what it's made of and what it's like there. We all got together and we were like, we need to have a really good idea of how all of these different instruments on the telescope work. And we need to showcase how time series observations work so if we're looking at a transit of a planet as it passes in front of the star, we have to get a snapshot in time before it's in front of the star, as it's passing in front of the star, and then afterwards. So we've got these snapshots in time across this whole process. And that kind of observation isn't something that telescopes are necessarily designed to do. 
They're designed to take a picture uh, and add up all of the light and see what that is. Whereas we're going, no, we want snapshots. We want mm. lots of them sequentially and we want them over the period of sometimes eight to 10 hours or more. So that's a really long time and it's a really big ask for a telescope. So over a hundred exoplanet scientists got together to write this proposal, build up an idea. What do we want to look at? How do we want to look at it? And over the last three years, that has grown to over 300 scientists working together to now actually start working on the data that we planned. So we've got three different programs that we're going to be doing. One is to get a spectrum of a Saturn mass planet. And that is going to be done in three different instruments in four different ways. One is to get what is called a phase curve. So this is actually watching a planet as it does a full orbit around its star. Now, for us, that would take a whole year of observations. That is not what we're doing. Uh, this planet orbits so close to its star, a year is just over a day. So we're going to stare at this this star while the planet is orbiting around it for just over a day and measure its phase curve. And that's going to really tell us about the circulation in the atmosphere of this world. And then we're doing a program where we're looking at a really, really bright star and its planet. And the reason we're doing this is because we need to know whether or not the telescope can look at a really, really bright star. It might sound silly, but this telescope is so big, it's collecting so much light the camera can't handle it. So think about when you saturate an image on your camera, you get the big flares if you point your, your phone at the sun. That's exactly what, what it would be like doing. So we, we want to see whether or not it's possible to look at these bright stars. So we've got this amazing group of scientists internationally uh, across 10 different time zones, I think we were at, <laughs> and working on just so much amazing data. So is, <clears throat> so is it as much about working out how how the telescope actually works as it is about collecting data it seems to me like you know if you if you went out and bought a a simple refracting telescope it would take a while setting it up in your garden to work out exactly what it does and what it does well is it a similar thing with with JWST so the program is designed so that we can understand more about the telescopes, but we selected the targets that we're looking at for the science. So what, what can we get the most science out of? So it's a bit of both. What's really amazing is that the telescope itself has had commissioning time. So since its launch on Christmas Day in 2021, it's had about six months of time where the people who have designed the telescope know the instruments work on those instruments, have been doing what we call commissioning, which is testing everything mm. it possibly can do and working out where those little differences are and what little nuances the telescope is doing. So that commissioning data, that commissioning time was to do all of that stuff. So we're just kind of doing a little bit extra on top of that to go, okay, here's our very precise setup. Does it work? Is the way that we set this up the way that we need to be doing it and advising the community. So the point of these early release sciences is to be an advisory board essentially for the community. This is how we did it. This is the results we got. And this is the limits that we push the te telescope to. See if we can push it more mm. uh, or, you know, use this as your guideline. So there's a lot of different things that we, we can do with that. And it really is a massive effort. The commissioning took over over 20,000 people. So it it's a complicated telescope and we just want to make sure that everybody over the next two decades who will be using it gets the best science they can out of it. Absolutely. 
But with, with, with your um, early release science, science program, given there's like 300 astronomers, I think you said, using it, is it, is it difficult to, to coordinate that? Is there, is, especially seeing as um, it's sort of almost like a global program, is there, is there an element of having to decide who does what? Yeah, that is exactly it. It is a massive coordination effort. And this really goes to, to our leaders. We've got uh, Natalie Battaglia, who is the PI of this program, along with Jacob Bean and Kevin Stevenson. Uh, Natalie Battaglia previously ran the Kepler Space Telescope mm. program. So she's got a lot of experience in, in managing those kinds of teams and trying to get the best science out of people. And what we've done is we've broken those three programs down into sub-programs as well. So we've got people who are working on the observation side and getting the best from the data. There are people who are working on the modeling side and going, okay, well, how do I interpret that data and what can we do? And really the aim that we've kind of come in this from is to make sure that this work is highlighting as much as possible our early career researchers, our PhD students and our postdocs and going, this is the work that they've done. Mm -hmm. Let's try and use it to kind of really lift them up and, and make sure that they are getting the recognition for all of the really hard work that's being done and, uh, on all stages of it. So it's been really, really nice to be part of that process as it's kind of gone through. And as I've gone from that postdoc through to being that faculty member and being the one going, no, actually, this is yours now. This isn't mine anymore. Take it and show us what you can do with it. So it's been a really interesting process personally but it's also been a really really great process to see that we've grown from this 105 people who were first on the proposal to these 300 people which includes so many new scientists that are coming in yeah and i mean isn't it the case that that's that's just one one program looking at exoplanets because i was i was wondering um that in itself is such a huge program such a huge project but given all the all the multiple science goals for J, for uh, JWST um, galaxies, dark matter, the early universe, it, is it difficult for for one single team to sort of jostle and make sure that they get the data they want from the telescope? How, how, how do you make sure that that you, know, that you get your your slice of the pie in terms of data? So the way that the telescope time is given out is through a competitive process. So you apply, you write down your science idea and what you want to do, what target you want to look at, how you want to do that. So you have to design the whole observation. And then you send that in to the Space Telescope Science Institute, who then convenes a panel of peers, <laughs> panel of scientists in your field. So they divide it up into these different fields. So each of them, normally there's about 14 different panels running all at once. And they pick the best science that they can do with that telescope. And those ones get the time on the telescope throughout that year. And they do this in a yearly process. So we'll be seeing over the next 18 months the first cycle, the first year of observations that have been scheduled and been awarded to the community. And in that time, about 25% of it will be dedicated to exploring exoplanets and their atmospheres and understanding more about their formation in disks and directly imaging them and trying to work out as much as we can about the environments of these worlds. So 25% of this telescope is already going to be dedicated to understanding these worlds. And we're going to be getting spectra from transiting exoplanets of about 80 of them, 80 to 100 in one year. <laughs> and it took us 10 years with the Hubble Space Telescope to get that many. 
So it really, we're going to be spoiled for information on these worlds, and it really is going to represent a paradigm shift in our understanding. <laughs> um, yeah, that was one of the things I'd, um, I'd noticed about when the, the first images came out um, from JWST, and it was that, that deep field, and I think it was something like 12, 12 and a half hours that it had yeah. taken, whereas Hubble had just multiple, multiple times that. It, it, is, is that something that you're really, really looking forward to? It, it seems like it's going to be an increase in sort of regularity of the data you get, but you can get so much more data so much quicker. So one of the things that's really, really amazing is that the efficiency of it. So just exactly what you were saying, how efficiently you can get that same information. The thing about transiting planets is it takes a fixed amount of time for this planet to pass in front of its star, and that is dependent on the size of the star and its distance from the star. So it all comes down to Kepler's laws of physics, and that defines how long you have to stare at it. So even though the observations we're going to be getting are more efficient, which means that we're going to be getting way more precise observations, we're going to get more information with every observation we make, it takes the same amount of time to do it. <laughs> and the only times where we're seeing this huge efficiency increase for transiting exoplanets specifically is when with the Hubble Space Telescope we'd have to go back and look again and again to get that signal to be, be small enough, to get that beautiful uncertainty, to be precise enough so that we could tell something about it. With most of our programs with JWST, we have to look at it once and we've got that already. Mm. So. The efficiency comes with we only have to look at so many of these worlds a single time and we get so much more information than we've ever got before. So it is a way more efficient telescope because of, quite frankly, its size is the really driving factor there. So, um, yeah, you're, you're mentioning information there. I, I would love to know what, what do you actually receive from, from the telescope? Is it images? Is it, is, it, is it numbers on the screen that wouldn't make any sense to me but, or only make sense to an astronomer? What, what do you actually receive in terms of data? Yeah, so I can actually show you some of that. And we can see some of that information here on the screen. What you're seeing is the behind the scenes of that showcase that, that NASA had uh, on their release day. This is the spectrum of the star that the planet orbits. So what we're seeing is that the light from the star is being stretched out. And this is the light being dispersed, basically. Cool. So we've got wavelength along here. You can imagine the colors changing from our bluest end to our reddest end over here. And this is the star itself. And what we're doing is we're looking at this and taking a snapshot every couple of seconds yeah. so that we can get a picture of that star as the planet passes in front of it. Okay. Because embedded in this spectrum here is information on the atmosphere of the planet that's passing in front of it. Because that light from this star is shining through the planet's atmosphere before it reaches the telescope. So what we can do is we can subtract that star's light and what is left behind is just information on what's in the planet's atmosphere. Cool. So what we're trying to figure out is exactly what we saw in that press release from, from NASA, which showed us this wonderful spectrum. So that spectrum that we saw of WASP-96b that they showcased on release day, that's what we're going to get to with each of these images. If we break up that spectrum into lots of different chunks, so lots of different colors, 
we can get some information on what's in the planet's atmosphere and then we can use our models to interpret that and try and understand what's mm. going on. So it's a combination. You have to go from one through a light curve, so this time series, to get to our spectrum of the planet. And is, is there anything that you're specifically looking for within the spectrum? So the spectrum that we're looking at is from the ERS program. So this is a planet called WASP-39b. So I know another WASP planet. They've <laughs> all got little names and numbers that you kind of end up remembering. So WASP-39b is a Saturn mass world that orbits its star in just over four days. So it's a fairly hot world, over a thousand degrees. So this is the equivalent temperature of sitting under a rocket as it's taking off. So it's not, it's not a place you would like to go. No. Uh, but what we're looking for is we're looking for signatures of water vapor in its atmosphere. So in the gas phase, as steam. We're looking for carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and maybe methane in the atmosphere. And that's the, the key thing there. We've already measured with the Hubble Space Telescope that this planet has water vapor in its atmosphere. We know that. That's something that we've measured already. We have no idea about its carbon species. So we don't know if it's got CO, CO2, methane. We don't know about its nitrogen species, so hydrogen cyanide is something else that we're looking for. That's not something you want. It's not a nice, <laughs> nice material. Uh, ammonia as well. So there's lots of different things that absorb light in the infrared because every atom and molecule absorbs light and interacts with light in a different way. And that's what we're looking for is these spectral features, these bumps and wiggles that you see. Mm. That's the material interacting with the light. And JWST is allowing us access to the infrared where things like CO2 absorb the most light. So CO2 is an incredibly good infrared absorber. We see that here on the Earth. It, the more CO2 you put in the atmosphere, the more infrared, the more heat you get, basically. So we're looking now in the infrared at these planets to try and understand what their carbon species are like. And is, is there any sort of specific processes that you're trying to detect? Um, is it anything at all to do with, with looking for signs of, signs of biological life existing? Or is it, is, is it something a little more, more subtle than that? Yeah, so for a majority of these planets, you, they're not tourist destinations. They'll never be tourist destinations. They are hell. <laughs> uh, the atmosphere is tidally locked to its star. So the planet itself is orbiting and rotating at the same rate. We see this in our own solar system with the moon. So we only see one face of the moon because its rotation, the time it takes to rotate about its axis, is equal to its orbital period. And that means that it is tidally locked to the Earth. These planets are tidally locked to their stars, so they have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. Right. The day side is over a thousand degrees because it's being bombarded by that solar radiation because it orbits so close, about 20 times closer to the star than we are to the sun. So move us 20 times closer, we're gonna heat up quite a lot. That's even closer than Mercury is in our own solar system. And then on the night side, it never, ever sees that sunlight. And what's happening is that causes a temperature difference, which drives supersonic winds around the planet. So there are winds ripping around these planets at thousands of miles per hour. And carried in those are materials which are forming the clouds in the atmospheres, which would be things that we're standing on, rock. Hmm. So magnesium silicate, the sand on our beaches, 
those would be forming clouds in the atmosphere. And when you heat that up, it becomes glass. So for these planets, you have to imagine, if you can, <laughs> liquid droplets of glass flying at you sideways at thousands of miles per hour. It's really not anywhere we should be expecting <laughs> to look for life at all. And JWST is going to give us the ability to go beyond these kinds of worlds that I just described, these giant planets. We will be looking at smaller worlds. We will be looking at worlds that orbit their stars in that Goldilocks zone where the temperature should be just about right for liquid water to exist on a surface if they have a surface. And the first question that JWST is going to be able to answer for those worlds where in the future we might potentially be looking for signatures of life is do they have an atmosphere? So we know an atmosphere is critical for life to exist. Right now, we have no idea if these small rocky worlds that we've discovered have an atmosphere. So that's the first question that we're going to be answering on the journey to discovering life in the universe. <laughs> because, I mean, for, for me, I, I sort of get the feeling that were it me, I would just be really eagerly anticipating looking at those those rocky, potentially habitable <laughs> worlds. Just a quick, let's just let's just look at the the, the Earth-like planets to see. Do, do you feel that as well, or are you sort of sort of is it sort of more about sort of patiently built, building up to that? So I, I actually love looking at these giant planet atmospheres. I love the clouds made of liquid glass and iron and corundum, which is a basis of rubies and sapphires. I love understanding these giant worlds because. What they're teaching us is whether or not we really truly do understand the physics and the chemistry and the dynamics of a planetary atmosphere. Before exoplanets, before the observations we've been able to make of their atmospheres, we had our solar system. We had a single data point of eight different worlds, all very different from each other. Every single planet in our solar system is incredibly different from the next one. That told us next to nothing. <laughs> so what we're able to do with these thousands of exoplanets that have been discovered is use them as these little test tubes to really hammer down and understand the physics that's going on. What happens if you've got this planet that is superheated on one side and completely dark on the other side? Is that the same? If you look at another one, which is in a very similar situation, that is a question we do not have the answer to yet. And those are the things that really test our understanding of what's going on. And I absolutely love the ability to learn from those worlds. So I'm really excited about these giant worlds that we're going to be looking at. And we've got loads of them to look at. So I'm not going to be bored anytime soon. But I really do think there's so many different questions in exoplanets that we need every single one of them because we do not yet understand our own solar system and our own existence. And that is something that we need to now look out to look in. In terms of those exoplanet spectra that you were talking about, we've obviously we've seen what, what you get, the, the sort of um, mixed raw version, and then what we saw with the, the NASA releases um, of uh, the uh, spectrum of WASP 96b. Um, how, how do we get from, from the sort of mi mixed up version, the raw version, for want of a better word, to, to the nice clean version at the end? Yeah, so there's this whole data process that needs to go on behind the scenes before NASA could release that. 
And that spectrum is looking at what we call the transit. So what we can also see from that, that press release that NASA put out is a little graphic which is showing you the planet and its atmosphere passing in front of the star and the measurements that are made of that. So this is the transit-like curve. Um, and what we're seeing here is the star's light before the planet passes in front. And then as it's passing in front, we start to see this dip. And that's because physically, the planet is literally blocking some of that starlight out. And we can measure that. That's on the order of less than 1% of the star's light. And that's what we're measuring. And then we, again, we keep measuring it as it's in front of its star. And then it comes out and we start measuring the star again. So that's a really clean and beautiful version of what we call a light curve. But to get there, we have to go through a couple of processes. So what we can do is we can take our raw spectrum that I showed you before, this whole image, absolutely nothing's been done to it. This is exactly what the telescope saw. And we can add up every single bit of information in this image. And if we do that, and then put all of those images we took over those hours next to each other, we end up with this light curve. You can see it's quite messy. We've got changes here on the order of about 1% uh, of yeah. the light. So we've just got lots of noise. Does it look like there's a planetary transit in there? You can still see the like a, a dip in the center. Is, is, is that what we, we sort of see in the final image, that, that dip? Yeah, so we can kind of see a dip there, but it looks really noisy. So what I wanted to do next is we just take that really bright stripe down the middle, and that's actually our star. That's the exposure of our star. So if we just then take our bright stripe down the middle, we can start to see that instead we get this. So you can really now see that planet's transit in there. And you can see it's within that noise. So it's within that 1%. So if you were just looking at this spectrum straight from the telescope, you possibly might go, there's nothing there. Yeah. But in that noise is the signature of this planet passing in front of the star. And that's really just the first step that we have to go through. Because there's still a lot of noise in there. There's a lot of electronic noise from the telescope, the instruments. There's different frequency noise and wavelength noise. So we need to remove all of that. So we're going to go through some processes to remove that background information so that we're left with just the information from the star itself. And when we do that, we end up with a, a transit very similar to what we get with the, the NASA press release with WASP 96B. So you can see how amazingly clean that is. Yeah. It's a really beautiful data set. Hmm. And from that, we can break up the light then into lots of different wavelength bins. And if we do that, we can see this transit shape change. And those changes are because of the planet's atmosphere. Ah, okay. So the way that this light curve changes as a function of its wavelength, so if we plot one wavelength against another, the differences tell you something about what's in the atmosphere of the planet. So that's what we see when we put up our spectrum, is we're seeing the measurement of that transit at that particular point in wavelength space, in that particular color. And if we do that across all of the different colors that JWST can see, we can get this amazing spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. And from that, we can understand what what it's made of, what its environment is like. That cleaning up process, it must be a long process. Is there, is there any amount of it that can be done through artificial intelligence or does it have to be done by a human being 
sitting down doing it, doing it manually. So a lot of the processes that we do, a lot of astronomy is, is done through our computers and through our code. So I'm working with amazing grad student here at Bristol called Lily Alderson, who has written a great pipeline to take these data sets, break them down and pull out those noise sources and correct for it. So that is a pipeline that we can then run the data through that does all those corrections for us. So there is a human behind all of this. It's not all machine learning. There is always some brilliant scientist sitting at the back going, well, what questions do I need to ask? So in a number of different ways, we just, it still requires us to sit there and ask the right questions. So I, I'm really excited to see what we can get from these data sets from that really, really raw light curve that we've got from just taking all of the stuff the telescope gives us to the really, really cleaned one, which where, where we can then measure the information from the planetary atmosphere. It's obviously quite a, a task, especially considering how many exoplanets you're going to be um, analysing in this way over the, over the next um, few, well, I suppose over the next two, two decades. Yeah. Um, do you, presumably the, the, the process gets fine-tuned, not just for yourselves, other, other astronomers can, can then learn from that? Yeah, so one of the really key goals of this early release science program is to develop tools and pipelines like one of those being made by my PhD student who's working with me on this, is to produce things for the community that they can use. And one of the key things that JWST has really allowed us to do is to bring that community spirit together. And that's kind of come with the evolution of the way that we work because we're also making sure that everything we do is open source. So all of these different codes are gonna be open source and available for anybody to download and use. But the key is that we also produce enough information around those so that people understand what it's doing and understand why it's doing it. Know that we're going from this raw data to this clean data, and what does that mean? What's happened in those processes and why did it need to happen? Mm. And as scientists, that's really where we want the knowledge to be going. We want people to not just go, here's the, the final product. We want them to understand why and how we got to that final product. Because that's where all of this amazing geometry comes into it of these planets passing in front of their stars and the wonder and <laughs> awe at these just chance and brilliant occurrences that allow us to investigate the, these atmospheres in detail. So. Hopefully we can we can start you know breaking down that process and not just showing you here's the result here's what this planet's environment is like is but also here's how we got to it and why because that work is really where we ask those questions. What what sort of um, stage are you at with your with your current observations? Um, how, how much data have you, have you actually received? And let's say up until the end of 2022. How, how, how do you sort of perceive the, ne the next few months in, in, in terms of the, the data you'll get and the, and, the, and the progress you'll make, for want of a better word? So the data that we've already got, uh, we've got all access to all of the commissioning data from JWST that the, the commissioning team have been working on for ages. We've got loads of data there. The ERS program, by the end of the month, will have four independent observations of a single target. So we're gonna have huge amounts uh, of information there that we're gonna to wanna to piece together. Right now we have a single one of those. We are waiting a couple of days for the next one. <laughs> and then again, by the end of the month, we'll have four data sets for that one alone. 
along with that, we've also had loads of other programs that have been being taken right now. So up till 2022, up till summer next year, we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of hours of JWST data to work through. Probably thousands. <laughs> so there, there is a huge amount of work to do. And it's not just on transiting exoplanets. There is also an amazing ERS program, early release science program, looking at directly imaged exoplanets as well. I'm working on studies where we're looking at brown dwarfs. These are things that formed like stars but didn't have enough material, so they're more closer to planetary mass. Trying to use them to understand more about the dynamics, chemistry, and physics in these, these kind of gravitationally bound atmospheres. And all the way from these giant Jupiter gas giants to these rocky terrestrial worlds. So we have a smorgasbord <laughs> of worlds. I don't know any other way to put it. We've got a gallery, we've got a, a catalog, we've got a, an array of just so much information coming down that we're gonna have to pick and choose which ones yeah. to focus on because you physically can't do it all. So <laughs> what is really nice about the community is that we know, oh, this team's really interested in this, they're gonna work on this. This team's really interested in this aspect, they're working on that. We're gonna learn from each other and we're going to you know, provide that information for each other. And it becomes this massive community effort to try and really dive into these worlds and understand what they're like. Um, given that the field of exoplanet study is very young, rel relatively speaking, I mean, the first exoplanets were confirmed in the, in the 90s. There are clearly lots of um, mysteries left to solve and unanswered questions. Um, what are the sort of unanswered questions in exoplanet science that you're hoping Webb will lead to uh, uncovering over the, over the coming years and decades? Yeah, so... We're constantly being surprised by exoplanets. They're constantly showing us things that we never even thought to look for. And we're gonna be able to start kind of looking into these. One of the big key things is that the Kepler Space Telescope mission, which was designed to just search for planets, discover them, found that the most common type of world is somewhere between the radius of the Earth and the radius of Neptune, which is four times the radius of Earth. So if you line up four Earths in a row, that's, that's the size of Neptune. Over 50% of the planets that have been discovered exist in this size range. And we have nothing like it in our solar system. There is no planet in our solar system that is somewhere between the size of the Earth, the largest terrestrial world, and the size of Neptune, the smallest gas giant. We have no examples of these, and they make up over 50% of the 5,000 worlds plus that we have discovered so far. So there is a huge number of these planets out there that we do not know what they're like. And it actually turns out they sit into two different groups. They sit into what we call the mini Neptunes, because we're really good at naming things. <laughs> these are the ones that are slightly smaller than Neptune, down to about two and a half, one, 1 1.8 times the size of the Earth. And then everything between the size of the Earth, so the radius of the Earth, and 1.8 times the radius of the Earth, so nearly two times the size of the Earth, sit in what we call the super-Earth category. Large Earth, super-Earth. <laughs> so these mini-Neptunes and these super-Earths 
we do not know what they look like. And one of the key things that we're going to be able to do with JWST is start to look at their atmospheres and ask the question, okay, well, do these mini Neptunes have a hydrogen helium atmosphere like Neptune does? And then lots of other materials in it? Or are they genuinely giant rocks with little atmosphere at all? Are these super Earths things that are just a scaled up version of the Earth with a Earth-like atmosphere or a Venus-like atmosphere, which is dominated by CO2? So the first question that we can start answering, and this is going to be happening in the first year of JWST, I'm part of a really amazing program called COMPASS which is looking at 11 planets in this super-Earth mini-Neptune divide, trying to ask, do they have an atmosphere? If they do have an atmosphere, what is it like? Are the mini-Neptunes actually hydrogen and helium? And the super-Earths, these large rocks with things like CO2-dominated atmospheres or nitrogen-dominated atmospheres like the Earths? Or is there a little bit of both? Or is it none at all? They're new things that we need to ask. And one of the key things with any new mission, any new telescope, is wait for the unexpected. We will be surprised. We're looking forward to being surprised because that challenges our understanding of the universe. And that's exactly what we want to do. As astronomers, as astrophysicists, we want our understanding of the universe challenged so that we can really hone it down and pick it apart and make sure that we get it right. So looking at these mini Neptunes and super Earths is going to be one of the key things in exoplanets that helps us understand our universe that little bit more. I love the way um, exoplanet scientists often, when they're talking about exoplanets, they, they bring it back to our own solar system. And don't you, don't you find that so much when with, with people talking about astronomy and astrophysics? It's like you're sort of looking out into space and and the universe and discovering what's there in order that we understand our own cosmic backyard a little bit better? I always think that astronomers are always a little bit philosophical at heart. We're all, all, all little philosophers, really. And it is a little bit of an egotistical look back. It is this egocentric, well, this is the Earth, this is where we're from, and this is why and how. But it is also a really good kind of anchor point, a measurement, a yardstick, really, to kind of go, this is something that we can study up close and understand in tiny little details. How does that apply to the rest of the universe? But the beauty of these new telescopes and these missions where we can start looking so much wider, we can look at thousands and thousands of galaxies, we can look at hundreds and hundreds of exoplanets, and we can ask the question, okay, well, let's turn it on its head. These all look like this. Why doesn't this? So it's a really nice way where from exoplanets, we started with this one set of planets that we thought that defined our universe. That defined what a planet was. And we have found out in the last 20 years, that's not true. <laughs> so we now need to start looking out there so that we can really understand why that isn't true. Why is this solar system right now, not the way that a huge number of worlds out there seem to kind of look. What happened to them? What didn't happen to us? What did happen to us? So it is about getting that comparison. It is that kind of looking back on the solar system. It is about looking back on our galaxy or on our sun, because that's our highest 
information volume. And we don't know why it is the way it is. So we've still got these massive open questions to answer. It's so exciting and, and, and to be just at the start of it all, you know, um, we've sort of only just got the first images being made public. It's, it's fantastic. Um, thanks very much for, for having us today and for, you know, speaking to us. And I'm sure we'll be keeping in touch over the, over the coming years as, as you and your, your colleagues um, make more discoveries. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting, really terrifying. There's so much data to get through, but we're really excited to share it with everybody. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. <laughs>